0: Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is written in the law of the Lord every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. To offer a sacrifice, according to what it said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump into that text, let's, let's pray. Father, uh, this is a season where we celebrate the fact that Jesus, your own son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And as John wrote in his gospel, um, the word of God became flesh. And so we, God, we want to live our lives based on, on your word, on, on your truth. And so each week we, we open your word and, and trust that your spirit will speak truth into, the, into our lives, into the midst of our world. So do that, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I love this time of year. I'm I'm someone who's all in on Christmas. I love eggnog. I love cheesy Christmas songs. I love Christmas lights. Uh, I'm all in on Christmas. But there's one thing about the season that I have always hated, and that is the waiting. Now, my parents had a very strict rule growing up, which was that there would there would be no gift opening until Christmas morning, which meant like waiting. And we pass this on to my own kids. There's no Christmas uh, or there's no presents until, uh, until Christmas morning. So we have a chain of paper like to help them count down the days until Christmas morning so they can see by visually like here's how long you have to wait. Um, and this, this week we had a bit of a problem because there was a discrepancy between the chain and how many days my kids thought there were until Christmas. The chain was eight. The kids thought seven. And so this was a potentially explosive situation Uh, Which was resolved peacefully because the chain was uh, correct. Um, And so Christmas is all, it's it's about a lot of great things, but it's like at the heart of Christmas is waiting. Which is why so many of our best Christmas songs deal with waiting. And I want to, just two quick examples of some of the the best and most important Christmas songs we have. The first being O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That song is basically a seven verse meditation on waiting for the return of Christ, now, O come, desire of nations, binds in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our King of Peace. Now, this is a song of meditation, waiting on the reign of Christ to come and end our divisions and bring peace and. Given our current situation and our current rulers, like that, that song should ring very true to us. There's so much division. We long for the peace of Christ. So that, that's one example of a really important Christmas song that it deals with waiting. Another uh, Christmas song that deals with waiting comes from one of the most important Christmas albums, I think in my lifetime, uh, which is the album uh, Merry Christmas by Mariah Carey. And she, how, this is how she meditates on this waiting theme for Christmas, I won't ask for much this Christmas. I won't even ask for snow. I just want to keep on waiting. There it is, underneath the mistletoe. Because <laughs> I just want you here tonight, holding onto me so tight. What more can I do? All I want for Christmas is you. You guys think that's about Jesus? I don't know, Um, but she's even Mariah Carey is waiting, and this morning I want to introduce you to a man who waited a long time, (laughs) maybe the longest in history for what is this Christmas season, which is this man named Simeon, and early in his life, he got a word from the Lord, which is that, that he would not die until he had seen the birth of the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. But then he had to wait. Probably 60, 70, 80 years. And so what he said, he, what the Lord said he would see, he actually saw. And I think about that and what, like how do you wait for God for 60 years? It was virtually impossible for me as a child to wait 3 weeks to open presents. How in the world do I become the sort of person who could wait on God for 60 years? Because let me promise you something, that in, a, in an instant gratification culture, God is not an instant gratification God. And Simeon had to learn this lesson, and we are going to have to learn this lesson if we are going to be people who wait on God. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I want to three things this morning out of this text. Uh, if you're going to wait for God well, you have to get stuck in your ways. You have to see the offense, and you have to let the light overwhelm. So first, you have to get stuck in your ways. And I, I, want, to, I want to highlight what we're told about Simeon, which is, is, is just a few things, not much. But we're told in verse 25 that he was righteous, he was devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this word devout is a particular word that, that refers to the fact that Simeon was someone who, who, who followed the ways of God meticulously. He kept, he, he was obedient to God in very meticulous and intentional ways, and some of the earliest Christian writings uh, say that, that Simeon was actually 112 years old at this moment. We don't, we don't know if that's, that's accurate or, or not, but what we do know is that he is, he is almost dead. <laughs> and so he has waited a long time. And, and yet, despite the fact that he's waited this long time from the moment God said, you're going to see my, my, the, the birth of the Messiah to today, where he's almost um, passed on from this earthly life, he's waited without cynicism without giving up on God, but he's, he's meticulously followed and kept the ways of the Lord for all of these long years until now. He's, he's come to the temple, and the Lord's revealed to him this child that Mary and Joseph hold is the Lord's Christ. And so let's just assume, like, Simeon gets this word of the Lord um, at the age of 18, and he's 80 now. That is, that is 62 years. He waited for God, for 62 years. 62 years ago from today is is 1957. In 1957, Dwight uh, Eisenhower was just beginning his second term as president. Uh, The US attempted to launch its first satellites and failed. Right now our world runs on satellites. They hadn't even started yet. Um, And for the first time, the Frisbee was marketed and sold as a toy. So imagine God makes a promise to you when Eisenhower was president, before satellites were in use, before Frisbees even existed, and it didn't come true, didn't happen until today. Would you have waited? Before we ever get to studying what Simeon's saying in response to his encounter with the baby Christ, we have to to start with, how long am I willing to wait for God? Would I have waited for God? I think that question is especially important to us because we live in an instant gratification culture. Um, and, And one way to highlight this, I recently finished a book called The Ruthless Elimination of hurry, and it had, it had an idea in it that was incredibly profound for me, and I've been trying to put it into practice, although Misty will tell you I did not put it into practice yesterday, but I'm trying to put this into practice, and I, if you do this, it will change your life. So get out a pen. You need to write this This is really important. Write this down. Life-changing advice. Here it is. Drive the speed limit. <laughs> I'm only half joking, Uh, I started doing this a couple weeks ago after I read this, and i got to tell you first, I didn't even know what the speed limit on I-35 was, which, like, 60 feels a little slow to me, but, like, I'm not going to bicker with that, but just, it's like, putting my, my car into cruise control, sliding over into the right lane, and just driving slower than everybody else was an act of, like, punk rock resistance unlike anything maybe I've ever done in my entire life. And like, I thought, like started think, why do I drive as fast as I can? It's because I hate limitations. And I want to cram as much as I can into my life and into my day as I can, which makes the speed limit unrealistic, when in reality, I am unrealistic. And this rush life, this unrealistic pacing means that I have no chance of becoming the kind of person who could wait for God for 62 years, because I can't even wait for him for two minutes. I can't even drive 60 miles an hour. And so you contrast our current culture with Simeon, and and he's he's this devout man who follows the ways of God, who you you can be assured that when it's time to be in the temple to make a sacrifice and to worship, he is in the temple to sacrifice and to worship. And I think that the fact that he's built his life around the rhythms and practices and ways of God it's why, why he could endure 62 years of waiting for God to say what he would do to come to pass. And if you and I want to want to, to be people who can wait for God with that sort of resilience and patience and time, we have to get stuck in our ways. And in a culture of hurry and rush, we have to slide over to the slow lane, put it on speed, you know, speed control, and, and slow down. It means building our lives and rhythms and practices and calendars around the ways of God and not the ways of this world. And my fear is that many of us, like, we just sort of fall in line with the rest of our culture, and we build our habits and rhythms and practices not on the ways of God, but on the ways of this world, which says, get it all, hurry up, do more if you can have it now. And so this week, I read an interesting article in the New York Times, and it was, it was entirely on the length of sermons, how long do people in America preach? And there were two big uh, takeaways from me uh, for this, th- this article. First, was is the average sermon length in the church in America is about 40 minutes. Uh, which is, I love that Tim Keller in the article said uh, that most preachers in America are nowhere near good enough to preach for 40 minutes. <laughs> um, now, to be clear, I average about 35 um, every week. Do not ask Andrew to verify that number. Uh, that's my number. It's good. Okay, we can move on. Um, but so no one's good enough. Well, that's how long we're preaching. But the second takeaway, uh, and Sarah Paulian Bailey, she's the author of this. Uh, she wrote this in light of, of something Keller said to her. She wrote, uh, Keller said when he started preaching 40 years ago, regular church attendance meant someone was in the pew three out of four Sundays. That number has dropped. Now a regular churchgoer appears maybe 1.75 out of four Sundays. And he wonders whether that's because many are listening to sermons via podcasts or online streaming as a fallback to showing up for a service. Um, now, I, I agree wholeheartedly with this trend. I think a lot of pastors are noticing this. And, and what's interesting is, is what's available to you on a Sunday morning, which is preaching, music, worship, you know, all the things we do, now is available on demand to you in the week via YouTube and worship videos, through sermon podcasting. And, and I used to think this is really great because, like, there's so much great Christian content available to, to Christians through the week. that it's, I mean, the, the resource of theological information you have available to you is incredible. Um, And yet, I'm not like, I'm not so sure I think it's a good thing anymore. And the reason why is, is worship is not about where I have my tastes met, where I have my gratification given to me instantly. But it's where I gather in a community to to submit to God's word, to submit to one another, to submit to the the reign of Christ, not to, to feed and feel full. And so even our Christian faith now can be built around a rhythm that's about my hurry. that's about me just consuming and getting and and taking in. And rather than what worship has been through most of history, which is this guarded space of the week where I slow down, where nothing else gets scheduled, where I I enter into a community with other people to, to, to submit to God with one another. Instead now, even our faith religion becomes this fast lane of driving and spiritual consumption. Now, the last thing you you need to hear from me this morning is another rule, right? Go to church more, right? It's the last thing you need from me. All I'm saying is slow down and drive the speed limit when it comes to your spiritual life. And just to meditate, and and, and my guess is many of us are in a season where where we have some vacation time, where we're pulling back a little bit, and, and I would just think about the questions, what is my life rhythm built around? What ways am I stuck in? And are they pointing me towards a life of waiting for God, towards the worship and beauty of God? Or to a life of hurry and rush where I am unlikely to wait for God? Because the hardest thing for us is that these rhythms of of obedience to God, of worship, of prayer, of the the daily rhythm and inhabitants of, of what God calls us to, we have to keep them in place even when it feels like they aren't working. That there will always be times when you will want to stop, right? When it will be hard to believe that the way of God is better than the way of hurry or the way of rushing. And what's powerful about, about Simeon, before we ever get to a song, is this man who, who received a word at some point in his life. He would see the birth of the Christ. And now he's almost dead. I mean, you see that this is clear in a minute. He's almost dead, and yet he hasn't given up at all. He's expectant. He's hopeful. He's obedient. <laughs> he, like... And you don't get that way unless you're stuck in your ways and your life is built around the rhythm and worship of God and nothing else. So if you want to wait for God for a long time, and you will have to. You need to get stuck in your ways, stuck in the promises of God. And secondly, you have to see the controversy. <clears throat> One of the, the very first paintings that Rembrandt painted was of this moment, uh, of this very story. And after Simeon, uh, he, he encounters the baby Christ. He sings a song, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, But then he turns to Mary, and he says this, like, he says a very serious thing, a very intense thing to Mary in light of Jesus. And here's what he says to her. He says to Mary, the mother of Jesus, "...behold, this this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." So this, is a, this is a really hard pill to swallow, but Simeon's basically saying, uh, saying that Jesus is going to be this offensive, controversial figure, which is really important, because uh, oftentimes I think, especially this season of year, Jesus is a baby, right? He's a cute baby uh, figure, um, but even Simeon, who sees the cute baby Jesus, says, no, 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 like this, 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 this boy is going to be offensive, and he's going to be divisive, and he's going to cause a lot of problems. And there's sort of two central things that, that, that he's saying about Jesus is that first, the message of Jesus is, is going to be controversial. And this is actually an allusion to Isaiah 8.15 uh, is what uh, uh, Simeon is pointing to. And, and that's a passage that talks about the salvation of God and often how the salvation of God, when it breaks into the world, it's such good news for some, but it's, it's bad news for others. Because all it does is it reveals what's, what's broken in us and you will either stumble and fall over that or you will, you will receive The salvation. So here's what Isaiah eight says. Simeon's alluding to this. I mean, he is talking about God entering into the world through uh, His salvation. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this, because actually, we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke uh, starting in January. And this is going to be a lot of what we talk about in the Gospel of Luke, is Jesus is controversial and offensive. And this morning, I just want to ask, do you see Jesus as an offensive, controversial figure? Have you tripped over his teachings? Has he ever offended you? Because if he's never offended you, and this is very common in our own culture, probably what's happened is you've, you've, you've shaken him down to your own size. You've taken uh, this offensive, controversial figure who was cr- who was executed as a state criminal. So think about the people we execute in our state—typically not well thought of as individuals. That's who Jesus was in his own day. Have you tripped? Up, have you has he has he offended you? Do you see him as a controversial figure? So that that again, that's going to be like a whole sermon series. I'm just I'm just teasing. Uh, come back in January. Um, so one, his message is controversial, but two, Jesus himself, when you when you bring him into your life, he induces controversy. And Simeon says to Mary, your, your child, this Messiah figure, will be like a sword piercing through your own soul. And most commentators see in that Simeon's understanding that Jesus would live this very controversial life, and, and Mary would, would suffer greatly, she would have a lot of grief in the fact that her own son would be... Would be treated terribly and would end up on a cross. So you just think about that. Mary's own discipleship, which she's in this weird place of both being a follower of Jesus and the mother of Jesus. But but she agrees to one, accept the scorn of, of the virgin birth, which would have been a stain on her the rest of your of her life. And we see that in the gospels. Jesus is mocked for no one knowing who his father is. So it's clear Mary accepted accepted scorn in becoming the mother of Jesus. But then she goes on to see Jesus rejected and treated terribly and executed by the state. She's there at the cross when he dies. That you could you could say in a sense that like Mary accepting all of this to be the mother of the Messiah, to be a follower of the Messiah was to accept a ton of trouble into her life. Like a sword piercing through her own soul. And if you take up life with Jesus, if you follow Jesus, At times, at moments, he is going to 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 bring about your life in a way that it's going to feel like he has a sword and it's just it's digging into your soul. Because he's a controversial, offensive figure who's bent on your salvation and eternal glory, not a life coach who wants you to have a better life. And so not just have you found Jesus' message offensive at times, but has God pierced your soul? Has following Jesus in moments felt like, how do I do this? How do I keep going? <laughs> this is hard. This is, this is excruciating. Like, this, is, this is way more difficult than I ever anticipated. And it's not just to ask you, has God? I'm also here saying he will at some point. Like, you need to be ready for that. If the mother of Jesus did not have an easy time having the Messiah come into her life, we should, accept no, we should expect no better, no different. The following Jesus at times feels like it's a a sword piercing your soul. And you have to receive that. You have to receive the controversy of following Jesus. Again, much of what I'm saying now is setting up for sermon series in January, but that's what, I mean, I love this. Simeon looks at Mary and says, listen, this is not going to be easy for you. And I would say the same thing to you. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is not going to be easy for you. And if it is, you're not doing it Right? So, Merry Christmas. Um, So, like, why follow Jesus then, right? And here's third. Finally, let the light overwhelm. So, decades of waiting, Simeon uh, has been uh, waiting, meditating on the salvation of the Lord's Christ all these years. And here's the song, the poem, the whatever it is he composes and he speaks over Jesus. Says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I can die now. He says. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And Simeon says, just seeing this baby, Jesus, uh, he didn't see any of the miracles of Jesus, he didn't hear any of his teachings. He didn't see the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Just seeing this child was enough for Simeon to say, now I can die. I've seen the salvation of the Lord. And it's like, how, well, but you haven't. All you've seen is a baby. Right? And yet the reason I think he, he say this for a number of reasons, but one is he is so steeped in the, the Hebrew Bible and the promises of what the Messiah would do that he's like, I've, I already know how this ends. And so his entire song, every single line is a reference to something in the Hebrew Bible. And what I want to do is I just want to take two minutes to draw out what he's alluding to. Then in verse 25, um, before the song starts, he says, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that is a reference to Isaiah 40, the the word consolation meaning comfort. I'm waiting for the comfort of. Of Israel and Isaiah 40 is this famous passage that begins with God speaking the word comfort twice, and and this word comfort became attached to the Messiah's own mission and, and ministry, that when salvation comes into the way uh, into the world, it's going to be a salvation of comfort. He's going to bring comfort to a hurting. People And so Isaiah 40 becomes this powerful meditation of what happens when God's salvation breaks into the world. And the end of that chapter is one of the most, most uh, important verses to my own life. And I just want to read these words. When, when Simeon says, I've seen the salvation of the Lord, he's thinking of the, these words. That Jesus is going to bring these things into existence. Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To him who has no might, he increases strength. For even you shall faint and be weary. Young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord... Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Salvation of the salvation of Jesus is like people who have fallen down, exhausted and worn out by this world, who suddenly mount up and, f- and fly like an eagle. A few weeks ago, I was down at uh, at Table Rock Lake for a retreat, and there were two bald eagles that had made their nest, like just outside of the window. And it was like a a day full of of meetings. And every now and then, there'd just be like two of us, just like looking out because the eagle would take flight, and someone would be saying something important, and no one would be paying attention. Because there's eagles flying. It's like, just be quiet. There's bald eagles. This is America. There are bald eagles flying. Be quiet. Um, But it, it was this beautiful image, and that's what salvation is, is worn down, broken, tired people who are given wings to fly. And Simeon looks at Jesus and says, that's about to break in. Uh, But he doesn't stop uh, there. He continues on. He says, this salvation for the Messiah is is in the presence of all peoples. Uh, This salvation isn't just for the strong. It's not just for uh, the connected, the well-connected, those who know, those with the best theology. It is for all peoples. And this is a a, a reference to Psalm 98 where we read, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The message being the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. It's not just for Jewish people. It's not just for people who know God now. It's for everyone. It's to go to the ends of the world. And Simeon has no idea about any of this. He just sees a baby. But he spent his life meditating on the promised salvation of the Messiah, such that when he sees this child, he already knows what's coming. He doesn't have to see any of it. He doesn't know exactly how this is all going to play out, but he knows the broad, the broad sweep of what is to come. And he can die in peace. And I just, I think about that. What is the one thing that if I got it, I had it, I saw it, I could say, get the casket, load me up, I'm good. It's time to go. That what is, what is the one thing that if you saw it, you could die in peace? Because I think oftentimes what I do is I settle for something less. I, I less ask the question, what, what will give me like lasting death, embracing satisfaction, and more, what will, what will make me happy? What will distract me? What will give me a, a quick hit of, of, of pleasure? Where, where do I just settle? And this is where, and, and even this time of year, this is very true, we turn to food or to alcohol, to sex or money, to power, control, to approval, to relationships. We're, we, we stop looking for that deep, death-satisfying joy, and we turn inward, closing our arms tidal, uh, tighter, settling for anything that would distract us anything that would soothe us that would make us feel okay which is totally understandable in this broken deeply deeply jacked up world to just say just let me i don't want to think about that for a minute give me something else to distract me instead and yet Simeon for 60 years did not settle waited for the lord that this one moment he finally sees the lord's christ one encounter with baby jesus And he's satisfied. And I I think if if you have a real encounter with the living Christ, which we as a church, Jesus is not dead and buried in, um, in Judea somewhere. He is alive, reigning at the right hand of God, which means we still believe people encounter the living Christ today. And I believe one encounter with the living Christ Listen, it doesn't do away with temptation or sin or all of those things we go to to cover the brokenness of this world. All of that's a lifelong struggle, right? Don't hear me. If you encounter Jesus, you'll become perfect. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you taste the reality of, of who Jesus is, there is a sense in which I've, I've had what's best and I can die in peace. Even though we will wrestle with all of the lesser things we settle for until that day. And so while we may not have seen Jesus in person, we have seen and know far more about Jesus than Simeon ever, uh, ever knew about him. We've seen, we, see his, we, we have his teachings, we have his life, we have his death, his burial, his resurrection. We have a light given to us that is so bright, even a cross cannot snuff it out. And it is that light of Jesus, his teaching, his life, his gospel that that should just overwhelm us, that we should come to again and again and again, like like Simeon, going to the temple just to encounter the person of Jesus. That light is what should overwhelm us and help us and enable us to wait for God in this long, difficult, tempting, trial-filled life. And it's why of all the amazing Christmas songs about waiting, Mariah Carey included, my favorite Christmas song is is Jesus Christ the apple tree. And it's it, because it so powerfully explains how difficult it is to wait for God and how inevitable it is to wait for God if you've, if you've truly encountered him. It's both so hard and it's so easy to want to give up, and yet I can't. And so the song starts with the confidence of a Christian who's just encountered the person of Jesus. This is the first verse. "Is the tree of life my soul hath seen, laid in with fruit and always green, the trees of nature, fruitless, be compared with Christ, the apple tree. Right, like I've I've tasted Jesus. There's nothing better. The rest of the world is, is, is pointless and fruitless, and I'll never go back. Right, it's this confidence, and at the same time, I like why why an apple tree? Like, did this the author of the song just have this weird affection for apple? Like, why an apple tree? But the song continues. Like, life wears you down. A later verse: I'm weary with my fr- former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Confidence gives way to weary faith. Faith in the midst of doubt. I'm worn down, but I'm going to sit here. I need rest, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to plant myself under this tree and wait. And this song builds all the way to my favorite lines, the last verse of the song. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive; it keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Right, my dying faith. From this, like confident, I'll never look back. To my dying faith is kept alive by this person and this person alone. He alone is the true free. And yet, like on the one hand, there's dying faith, and on the other hand, my my dying soul, my in haste to be with Jesus. Christ, like I. I've, I've seen the one thing that I'm living for. And it's here we, it's inter- like the reason Jesus is called the apple tree is because that's where everything broke in the world. It was at a tree in Genesis 3 when human beings ate from the wrong tree. The tree of life we thought would make us happy, would give, give us comfort, would bring us healing, would give us pleasure. Trees like to this day, we continue to try to eat from the trees of comfort and money and power and pleasure. And the way to a life of waiting on God is to let his life overwhelm you, to meditate on his salvation, to know so much about what the person of Jesus has done, to take from the tree and eat, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of Jesus Christ, to see him as the one thing in life, that I need and have. And while this doesn't take away all temptation and all sin from my my life, to, to take one bite from that tree, to know Jesus and who he truly is, is enough for all of life. It is to enter into a posture of waiting for him. That he's the one thing I have, he's the one thing I need, he's my one comfort in this life, and I will sit down and wait for his kingdom to break fully in. I love uh, Christmas, but there's one part of Christmas I've always hated. It's the waiting. But I hate the waiting for a different reason now. Not for presents unopened, but for a world yet unopened. A world of salvation, of light, of glory, of healing, of redemption. A world where all sad things come untrue, a world that has been bought with the blood of Christ and is available to every one of us now this morning. I want that world. And in this waiting, it makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room, for one reason or another, is in a posture of waiting for you whether that's maybe waiting for you to, <clears throat> to break into their life and they don't even know that there's a God who made them, that loves them, that wants them to drop all the things they're holding on to and living for and to come and to live with you and to know you and to turn away from the life they have and towards you as their one hope for salvation. God, there's others of us, we've, we've, we've turned to you and this life has worn us down and we're, we're just sitting under the shadow of, of who Jesus is and what he's promised just waiting with anticipation for his salvation to break in, not just at the, the second coming, but to break in in real ways in our life now through your spirit. God, you know, there's some of us, like this is, life is great and the blessings are flowing straight from Jesus into, uh, into our lives and we're just in a place of joy and I pray in this season we would not miss the joy is a gift from you a good god who is the giver of all good things that we would connect that joy and those good things with you as our father who gives good things god we're all we're all waiting and i pray in that waiting we would not settle for things that do not satisfy but we would wait we would wait for the redemption the hope the comfort of israel the return of jesus who is our hope we pray all these things in his name Amen.